Good evening, and welcome to the August 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. While the failing trust in law enforcement and questions about systemic racism in the profession have dominated the news this summer, and it's no secret that LGBTQ members of the profession have struggled with a law enforcement culture for decades, tonight we begin a two-part series looking at the state of law enforcement today, first speaking with Julie Callahan, a transgender woman who spent more than 30 years in the profession, and Ed Senatori, a gay firefighter and EMT. They will share their perspectives about the past, as well as what's happening today, and what the answers might be to make things better. Julie and Ed are also founders of two incredible organizations supporting transgender officers and LGBTQ firefighters. So stay with us. It's part one of our series coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, August 23rd, 2020. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of August 23rd, 2020. The Trump administration has repeatedly singled out the transgender community for attack, but one of the most egregious was recently blocked by a federal judge just in the nick of time. Three days before the Supreme Court ruled that trans people were covered on the basis of sex under the non-discrimination laws, the Trump administration announced it would roll back non-discrimination protections in health care implemented under the Obama administration. The Trump administration's reasoning amounts to some of the same arguments attorneys used to oppose the civil rights of transgender people in the Supreme Court case. U.S. District Court Judge Frederick Block cited the case and added that the administration acted arbitrarily and capriciously when enacting the new rules for the Department of Health and Human Services. Block wrote that when the Supreme Court announces a major decision, it seems only sensible to pause and reflect on the decision's impact. And he said since Health and Human Services has been unwilling to take that path, he will now impose it. At issue is Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, which bans the discrimination in health care on the basis of sex. The Obama administration interpreted that to include discrimination against transgender people. Since it is impossible to discriminate against someone because their sex assigned at birth doesn't match their gender identity without discriminating against them on the basis of sex. And last week marked the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment being added to the U.S. Constitution that provided women with the right to vote. And in the midst of the controversy over attempts to interfere with the rights of citizens to vote today, Donald Trump made a surprise announcement this last Tuesday morning that he will sign a posthumous presidential pardon for Susan B. Anthony, who famously led the fight to allow women to vote. Anthony, who was never married and was believed by many to prefer same-sex relationships, was convicted in 1872 for voting when it was not legal for women to do so. Trump made his announcement with a full and complete pardon for Anthony while hosting a ceremony at the White House with a group of 10 women. According to various historic accounts, Anthony, her three sisters, and 11 other women in Rochester, New York, demanded to register to vote. Then Anthony and several of the women showed up at the polls a few days later to cast their votes. A local Democratic activist challenged her registration, and she was subsequently arrested and ultimately fined $100. Anthony refused to pay the fine, but the judge ignored that in order to prevent Anthony from appealing her case to a higher court. Susan B. Anthony died in 1906. And here locally, Face to Face announced dates for this year's Art for Life event. Now in its 33rd year, it's the longest-running art auction benefiting HIV. This year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, face-to-face is taking the beloved event online. It'll run September 17th through September 22nd. 
And along with some amazing art from local artists, there'll be an opportunity to bid on some exciting experiential packages. To learn more, go to artforlife.f2f.org. And to learn more about other events happening here in the North Bay, go to gaysonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Morelia. Coming out as gay or lesbian in law enforcement and the fire service is hard enough, but coming out as transgender and transitioning on the job is the most challenging, still today. There's a perception in various parts of this country that racism is systemic in law enforcement, and perhaps that it's part of what fuels the pervasive homophobia and transphobia that's been shown to exist throughout the profession. And the fire service hasn't been a whole lot better. Just last month, a black firefighter filed suit against a Bay Area department for racial discrimination. And being gay or transgender in the fire service can be really tough. My two guests tonight have lots of experience in this area because both lived through it. Julie Callahan has recently retired from the Monterey County District Attorney's Office, where she's been an investigator. This career followed 29 years at the San Jose Police Department in the South Bay. She's the founder and CEO of TCOPS, Transgender Community of Police and Sheriffs. And Ed Senatori, he's a career firefighter and EMT who started his career in 1978, the same time Julie and I did. He came out on the job and founded the International Firefighter and EMS Pride Alliance. Julie and Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Well, it's great to have you both with us, and I appreciate your time. Well, let's get to it. Um, And I think for the listeners, they always like to enjoy knowing where our listeners came from and sort of how they got to where they are. Uh, Both of you have had amazing careers in public safety, law enforcement, fire service, and EMS. Uh, So, Julie, let's start with you. Talk about your journey to law enforcement. Okay. I started out as a lifeguard uh, in high school and became involved with the reserve uh, unit of the Fremont Police Department in 1978. And I was part of that uh, department for about 18 months and left that department. Um, well, we can go into that later, but I, I, about a year later, I was hired by San Jose Police Department mm-hmm. uh, in California. and. Uh, Worked there as a police officer and a detective for 29 years. Um, In 2010, I retired uh, and went to the Monterey County District Attorney's Office as a district attorney investigator. And I worked there for nine years uh, up until April of 2019. Congratulations. What a great career. Thanks. Now you started just you started the same year that I did back in 1978, and things were much much different then. Uh, so talk about your coming out experience. I mean, were you aware of who you were then? Was it fully clear to you? And and what were your thoughts about well, transitioning then? When I was with Fremont PD, I knew I had gender identity issues um, well before I got hired by Fremont, but they had not surfaced in public, and uh, I was taking a uh, hiring test for a police cadet position Mm -hmm. and had to reveal that I was transgender during the course of the uh, polygraph. And so I did that, and then I got a phone call basically asking me to resign. 
um, because they felt that uh, due to vicarious liability, I would be a detriment to the department and they would not be able to hire me. Um, so they asked me to also resign from my position as a reserve officer. And so I got out of law enforcement for about one year. Wow. So let's remind everybody, this is back in 1978 when things were dramatically different. And, and they actually asked you that question specifically on the polygraph. They did, yes. What was your, what was your feeling? Did you, know so that that, did, you, did you know that question was coming? I did not, no. It oh. kind of caught me off guard. I was 18, almost 19 years old and had zero experience. I had no idea what to expect uh, throughout the testing process. And um, so it did catch me off guard. But, you know, it was something I was not going to lie about. I was going to be totally honest with them, and I was. And um, it cost me my position. Mm. So then you went to San Jose and and had to go through a similar hiring process, I would imagine, right? Yes. So, so talk about that. How did that all go? So similar hiring process, but there was no polygraph involved. Mm. So the question was was not asked. And uh, the background investigator was very thorough, but never asked that question or anything related. And I eventually was hired. And so how many years after that did you decide to begin a transition? So in, let's see, I was hired in 81 by San Jose. And in about 1998, um, I was really dealing with uh, some strong issues about my gender and being able to express it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is when I kind of began the process of transitioning. I was married at the time. I have kids and uh, that caused some delay because I was dealing with personal issues. Mm -hmm. And um, then I, in 2001 ish, I transitioned at at the PD. And and so talk about that. I mean, San Jose I, is a pretty progressive organization. I think it always has been overall in the big picture. Um, but still, that was pretty challenging in that time. So walk us through it. How did that experience go? Sure. So um, San Jose had had a, a history of uh, lesbian officers coming out since probably 82-ish, 83. Um, and there were a number of lesbian officers that came out, uh, but there were no gay officers and there were no trans officers or any bi officers. Mm -hmm. And um, at least anybody that was out. And so I started kind of networking with the people that I knew were family. And... Um, eventually got to the point where I, I felt comfortable at least talking to the chief about it. And I ended up speaking with one of the deputy chiefs who happened to be a lesbian. And, you know, she was very supportive, very understanding, very um, knowledgeable about the issues. And, you know, she basically paved the way administratively for me to 
transition at, at work. And and the chief back then was very supportive. That was Bill Lansdowne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the assistant chief was Tom Wheatley. Uh, they were both extremely supportive uh, of me personally and professionally, which I think is really important for anybody transitioning. If the administrator, the executive at the agency doesn't set the tone, um, the rank and file will basically follow their lead or be left to their own devices. Right. Right. And so that you had support from the administration. How about your, your colleagues and coworkers? You know, that was a different story and it was a mixed bag. Um, I began, well, uh, when people, when I disclosed to people, um, I started doing it on a one-to-one basis. So I sat down with 1,100 people on the police department Mm. uh, individually and basically disclosed to them what was going on. And I got a variety of responses, Um, some positive, mostly uh, neutral uh, to my face, and then many, many, many negative ones uh, behind my back. And, you know, the that stuff ends up getting back to you and I was prepared for it, but you know, it was disappointing. Some of the people, uh, that turned, turned on me basically. Um, and one of them being my partner Mm -hmm. and that was my, my car partner that is. Um, and that was really disappointing because he and I had worked together as detectives for about 12 years. What was what was motivating his uh, turning on you as you described it? Was it a was it a religious thing or or just was he just not comfortable? Uh, in his eyes, he felt that I had deceived him, and that uh, the the mask that I was wearing uh, was a lie that I perpetrated, and that you know I wasn't truthful and honest to him about who I was. So he would have preferred that you would have come out to him in in the spirit of truth years before when you first started working? Is that what he was trying to get at? I, I'm, I'm sure that would be it, and I'm sure that would have ended the friendship and partnership relationship back then. Um, I, he and I have made amends since, uh, but it was, a, it was a pretty darn difficult decision, I think, uh, for him in terms of peer pressure to be supportive of me at work. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's just always interesting to me. I, I've had a similar experience where fr- very close friends, when I came out, really made it about them. It was all about, well, how come you couldn't tell me? Well, it's not about you. I didn't tell anybody. Uh, but they were very offended by the fact that somehow uh, our, their, our friendship wasn't worthy of, of full trust. And, and so they were more offended by that than finding out I was gay. Right. Which is odd. Yeah, you know, cops are, are very uh, opinionated about loyalty mm-hmm. and trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. And in something as personal as this, most of us keep it very close to the vest, so to speak. It's not something we share, uh, at least certainly back then. Right. Um, you know, times were much different. And right. the acceptance level was, was much different. Right. 
Well, obviously you had a very successful career. So at some point you were able to navigate that and, and things got better? Um, I think things got, well, they became neutral at San Jose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I had applied for investigative positions and was told that I wasn't qualified uh, after I transitioned. And that was really kind of interesting because um, I, I would say that that is not the case. And then um, I was unable to get hired by the district attorney's office down there for similar reasons. Mm-hmm. But I was able to get hired by Monterey County District Attorney's Office um, with full knowledge of you know what was going on. There was at least one other San Jose uh, retiree that went to work for the DA's office in Monterey County. And he basically told them who I was way before I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hired me all the same. So I was very pleased with that. And I had a very, very good, un, uh, oh, I don't know. A, a, my time there was well spent and well received. That's great. So That is great. And, you know, being a pioneer, you helped pave the way and, and hopefully for Future members of the San Jose Police Department, this will be easier for them, and, and the same for Monterey. So that's great. That is great. Uh, Ed, let's talk about where you got started. Uh, you started in the fire service, right? Yeah. Um, kind of strangely, 1978 was a, also a time for me, uh, age 14. I started with the California Department of Forestry at that time uh, as an explorer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were no other. This was 1978, so there were pretty much no other uh, explorer programs or anything else that you could do at that time, except there were a handful of like law enforcement uh, explorer programs at different police departments. But I was more geared to wanting to get into the fire service, so I spent, uh, I think, it was a total of five or six years with uh, CDF as uh, an explorer and a cadet. And uh, during that time, I studied and got my EMT, uh, my emergency medical technician. Mm -hmm. And in 1985, I was hired by uh, Mercy Ambulance, Mercy Peninsula Ambulance. They were based out of uh, Colma, California at the time, and started working on an ambulance. Also, pursuing my fire career and taking a lot of tests here and there was eventually hired uh, by a fire department here in the Bay Area and had a nice 22-year career uh, doing that and doing the fire service and held on to my EMT for, I'd say, about 10 years uh, working on the ambulance and eventually transitioned completely off the ambulance and then just did fire. Um, 1985 was kind of the height of what would be considered the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. So Mm -hmm. the ambulance Mm -hmm. company that I was working for at the time uh, worked very closely with San Francisco General Hospital. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a lot of uh, transports um, out of the Ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital. Um, There's a documentary that you and I both I know have seen and we've talked about. uh, Just fantastic. It was um, actually, you and I talked about it, it actually churned up uh, a lot of emotions because 
for for a better part of probably three or four years uh, on the ambulance going in and out of San Francisco General all the time and transporting a lot of uh, patients who had acquired um, the AIDS disease. Um, it was it was an eye opening experience, and also for somebody who was struggling with being gay. Uh, it was a rather turbulent time um, deciding whether or not I would come out or not. Working for a fire department, very conservative fire department, um, you didn't talk about your personal life, especially something like that, um, like Julie was talking about. Um, it, it was a, it was a different time, and you know, people were very conservative. And talking to your coworkers about you know who you are and your sexuality is was something that was, you know, kind of off limits. It was uh, taboo. Even in the Bay Area? Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. Um, so I think it's interesting that all three of us really started about the same time in that, that very, I'll call it a bizarre, but also magical year of 78. I mean, that was the year Harvey Milk was elected to public office. It was the year he was assassinated. It was the year the rainbow flag was created and flown for the first time. And I remember all of that. Um, but despite the gains, it was still a very, very, very homophobic time and transphobic time in police, fire, and, and EMS. So uh, you knew at the time you started working for CDF that you were gay, right? Oh, yeah. I knew it. I knew at 14, actually. Um, I had had a boyfriend actually at that time and again you know it was taboo so right. you didn't talk about it and you know it was you know kept on the down low and you know for for good reason i mean the fire service was a very male-dominated macho profession and it was like you don't want to reveal something like that um to your colleagues where I mean, let's face it, you would be, you'd be ostracized. Well, in, um, in the Explore program, I mean, let's not make any, any bones about it. The Explore program was part of the Boy Scouts of America. The program I was in exactly. at that same time was also an Explore program. And the Boy Scouts uh, very, very plainly would have kicked you out simply for being gay, even out of the Explore program. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when did you finally make the decision to come out and how did it all go down? What happened? Um, the decision to come out came about nine years after I was into my career in the fire service. Um, the year was 1994. Um, I got tired of just not being me and, you know, not, I was, I was dating quietly, you know, and it was, it was just a, it was just an uncomfortable time. So, uh, I took the, uh, the big bold step. In 1994, I actually went to the Castro District in San Francisco, and uh, it was, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was a Thursday evening, and uh, Thursday evening was kind of referred to as college night, so a lot of the younger um, gay men were out, you mm -hmm. know, and people that were in their 20s and early 30s, and probably for a good part of an hour, I walked up and down Castro Street and walked up and down 18th Street. And I grew up here in San Francisco, so these are not areas that are not known to me. I, I know where to go. And um, being closeted like I was, uh, I even parked my personal vehicle several blocks away from the Castro District because mm -hmm. I didn't want anybody to happen to see my car mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. And uh, after walking up and down the streets there for about an hour i had finally got up the the courage to walk into a uh, an establishment called moby dick mm -hmm. 
and uh, it was it was kind of funny when I think about it now. You know, even if this was like a comedy show, it was like I just walked through the front door, I beelined it straight to the bar, and got myself a beer. And as I was casually looking around and not making eye contact with anyone, I noticed they had a pool table, and I grew up with a pool table in our family home. And it was uh, always an icebreaker with friends and whatnot. So I went over and put my name on the chalkboard and uh, waited my turn and started, you know, talking with other guys and started playing pool. Landed up staying there till 2 a.m. when the place closed. And uh, that was the beginning. That's mm. when I slowly started coming out. And that's a great story. How did your your firefighter colleagues receive the news? Um, actually, none of them knew. Um until I landed up uh, actually getting a job in the uh, in the Castro. I, I wanted to further my coming out and meeting uh, other men by uh, getting, you know, more into the community. So I landed up actually uh, getting a job as a bouncer at one of the local bars and started meeting people. And this, so this again, this was 1994. And around 1995, there was a, uh, what kind of really spurred everything into in emotion was there was a back east there was a club fire uh where a lot of people had been killed um and people had been trapped inside of a large uh bar and here in san francisco a lot of the local news stations were paying attention to that story and of course they went around all the bars in san francisco and wanted to interview uh bar owners and bar patrons about crowding Mm-hmm. in bars in San Francisco. And uh, during that story, actually, um, a local news uh, cameraman and reporter landed up coming to the bar I was working at, and I happened to be the bouncer on the door that night. And they wanted to come into the bar and film, but they were not allowed to, obviously, um, privacy reasons and whatnot. But they decided to do a live shot in front of the bar. <laughs> and I was I was in front of the door at the bar. <laughs> And uh, lo and behold, I uh, was on the 11 o'clock news. Well, there you go. That night. And uh, that, um, I was trying to go a little slow with the coming out process, but that kind of kicked it into high gear. Um, Not a lot of people saw it, though. I guess a lot of people don't watch the 11 o'clock news, but um, some people did, and there were questions. Okay. Well, that's one way to do it. I mean, some people come out on Facebook, and you chose ABC7 News at 11 o'clock. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, so, yeah. so you had a, obviously a very successful career. Uh, things eventually smoothed out for you. Um, yeah, um, there were definitely some rough uh, periods here and there. Um, there were people that were accepting. There were people that were not accepting. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who didn't accept uh, tended to push back. Uh, you know, verbally and, you know, by some of the things that they would do, but I never had any, any major confrontations. And I would have to say, um, acceptance was probably, it was like 50, 50. It, 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 not everybody was on board, but then again, not everybody stood in your way. Well, I think the fire service, one of the things that clearly is different about it than law enforcement is that, you know, law enforcement officers don't typically work 24 hour shifts where you're housed together. And that dynamic of having to sleep in a dorm, uh, is different. Do you, do, do yes. you think that that was the factor? Oh, that, that was a big part of it. Um, 
you had firefighters that didn't want to obviously, you know, be in the same dormitory with someone who was gay. Um, outside the firehouse, you had spouses who learned that their husband firefighters were working with a gay firefighter. Uh, something that they, you know, were concerned with with one reason or another because it was it was during the AIDS epidemic oh, and people were okay. always worried about well are you gonna are you gonna catch AIDS are you gonna get you know exposed to this person you know is mm-hmm. that something that's going to come home so there was there was a lot of pushback on both sides and it was also again uh, firefighters are conservative people. So they come from conservative families, and it was also more of the so you know you're working with a gay person, you know that's not accepted in our religion, mm-hmm. and, you know kind of thing. So sure. Now, obviously, things have changed. I guess I'm making an assumption. Uh, things have changed today, though, right? I mean, is it easier for gay firefighters to be out in the fire station? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the fire service has expanded or has evolved quite a bit. Um, it's no longer the big dormitory setting that you would see, you know, like on a television show or a movie about the fire department. You always picture this big dormitory with all the beds in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of fire departments have gotten away from that. They're now into uh, kind of subcubicle type of like bedrooms where you'll have like only two beds per room. And usually most firefighters land up uh, each having their own room or their own cubicle. So you know that that environment broke away and then of course the introduction of women into the fire service that really changed things um not only do you have you know heterosexual firefighters homosexual firefighters now women are in the department and then of course some women are you know straight and some women are lesbians so the makeup of the fire department has changed considerably mm-hmm. and for the better um, a lot of a lot of fire departments have made strides, but a lot of fire departments actually have fallen back in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. They've made room and acceptance for these, you know, for LGBT folks. But as far as like advancing in careers, not so much. Um, as far as acceptance, you know, acceptance is huge. Working with your uh, fellow firefighters, like you and Julie both spoke about police officers, there's that level of trust. So, you know, coming out to each other, talking to each other, that's how you build the trust factor mm-hmm. uh, in, in the fire service. And again, you know, there are sometimes there are firefighters who don't want to speak about their personal lives if, if they're LGBTQ. Uh, sometimes people are offended by that. They're like, you know, don't you trust us? You know, don't you want to talk about things like that? I mean, you know, my first three or four years on the department, like going to dances and, and functions, I actually took my cousin. Um, she, uh, she's a girl. <laughs> uh, she was my date. She was my date uh, to a lot of functions for the three or first three or four years because it's important to keep up appearances. Right, and you want to fit in, and you want to be accepted by your peers. I, I get that. Uh, right. So, Julie, as you look back on your career and really looking at, at law enforcement as a profession, when did you? see the shift happen i mean it's not that there's no problems today but but it is a lot better for out lgbt folks in the profession what what what's your sense of when that shifted i would say probably around 2013 ish um i started seeing a lot of changes within at least the san jose police department 
because I kept close ties with them after I retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some of the gay officers start coming out, uh, which was, you know, there were no gay officers out at the department before I retired in 2010. And um, our union president came out um, around 2013-ish. And uh, I think there was a shift at that point because he was a very well-respected cop, a very well-respected union president, and um, just in general, well-liked as, as a human being, he was, he had a good heart. He mm-hmm. was a good man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think that helped quite a bit. Um, at least in terms of getting the ball rolling for people to start coming about because they did have, uh, a lot of lesbians on the department. And, uh, of course I was the, the only known trans person, which I wasn't, but I, the only known one just not the only trans person at the at the department so i i I started seeing that come out and and then we started having a a dispatcher transitioned on the department um they hired a couple of uh records clerks that were trans and um i i think you know those were big strides for the agency Mm -hmm. do you think the marriage decision had anything to do with that you know, I think that that probably was a, a motivating factor for the department to change their stance on things. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, good. That's really good. And, you know, San Jose is huge. For the listeners who don't know, it's the 10th largest law enforcement agency in the nation. And so to say that out of a you know rank and file of let's just round it up to a thousand, that there's only one gay man or only one transgender person is, is just that's not possible. Statistically, right? There has to be more. No. There has to be more. Um, have oh there, yeah, and, and, and there was. Yeah. Have, now, have others in the rank and file, police officers, uh, come out as either a trans man or trans woman since you left? No. Okay. Uh, not not uh, sworn. Okay. So there's probably still some work to do uh, there, and and uh, you know, it, it's it's still I think much more difficult for transgender members of public safety to come out than gay and lesbians. Ed, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, in, um, in 1985, when I was working with Mercy Ambulance uh, in San Francisco, one of the persons I ended up being uh, partnered with was actually uh, transgender. Um, it was a male transiting, transitioning to a female. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the that's when I got my first exposure uh, to a transgender person up close. I mean, I had seen them before in the Castro, but this is the first time I had worked with one. And um, talk about courage. Um, I really admired her um, during the during the transformation uh, period. And a lot of other EMTs and paramedics wouldn't work with her. Um, they would refuse to. And anytime it was my turn in the shift rotation to work with uh, her or any other EMT, I always did. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. I really learned a lot. Well, that's and, that's the key. I mean, it was it, it was tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I can't even 
I mean, I know it's it's like being a closeted gay person, but but going through that process uh, at a law enforcement agency because it doesn't happen overnight. Obviously, it can take years for a person to fully transition, and so it, it's it's not only the personal work you're doing, but it's also having then to manage that with your coworkers as opposed to coming out as a gay or lesbian person. There's sort of that big explosion of news, and then six months, a year later, it's not news anymore. Uh, let's shift a bit. Uh, I want to get to talking about what's going on today with the public and sort of the, the challenges with law enforcement. Uh, Julie, let's start with you. Give me your sense. As you're witnessing now, having a long career in the profession, uh, when you, as you look out at what's going on today with law enforcement, uh, what are you thinking? You know, it's a really scary time, I think, for cops. Um, I I talk to cops pretty much every day, uh, whether it's through T-Cops or whether they're my San Jose uh, brethren or from the DA's office or, or from other, you know, uh, contacts that I've had. And, um, you know, with the pandemic going on, with the anti-police uh, rhetoric that's uh, seems to be permeating the news. It, it's really difficult for these people to justify doing what they're doing in, in their head sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, they're, they're struggling and they're struggling with their own identities uh, within the LGBT community, but also within their profession and whether they want to continue that or not. You, you bring up something I think that's a very unique struggle for LGBTQ officers because it's not only being rejected by the general public, but being part of a unique community as a gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender officer, to have your own LGBTQ community reject you, as we've seen happen in some different parts of the nation, where pride organizations are specifically excluding even LGBT members of law enforcement from participating in pride events or as happened in San Diego, uh, the Pride Center told their star trans woman, who's just a remarkable officer and a remarkable person, you're not welcome in uniform here. Uh, yes. It, it's got to be I've, really I've had difficult. a similar experience. Well, uh, tell us about that. What happened? Um, so this is circa 2008 mm -hmm. uh, in San Jose at the Billy DeFrank Center. And I had had that beat for 10 years intentionally uh, because I wanted to be close to the community. I wanted to be able to respond as a patrol officer and help with any kind of problems they were having uh, with the outside or inside. And if people had questions or they wanted to file a police report, I wanted them to have that ability to feel comfortable with somebody uh, that was from the community. And to some degree, I think I, I was able to do that, but there was a lot of anti-police sentiment at that point. And um, basically, I was told that people were afraid of me mm. um, and, and that they did not want me coming into the center with uh, a gun on um, or in uniform. And I, I guess those were two separate issues that came up at different times. Um, but people felt fearful and I tried to alleviate those fears, but really was banging my head against the wall and frustrated about the responses I was getting because they were completely unjustified 
in terms of my interaction with those people. Right. Right. It's, you and, know, you know, they, they all get they, lumped in. Yeah, very much so. And um, it, it was unfortunate. Uh, I'll put it that way. And I see that happening with a number of our uh, trans officers and some of our liaison, LGBT liaison officers from around the country. They're having similar experiences uh, where the community is asserting themselves, basically saying, hey, we don't trust you. Uh, and basically casting um a shadow on law enforcement in general, uh, saying that, you know, they're, they're, not, uh, you know, violent and there obviously has been a history of violence, uh, between the police and the LGBT community. And I think that's something most of us are trying to, uh, change that impression. Uh, and times have changed. It, it's not that the violence doesn't happen, but I think it's a lot less common than it used to be. Right. Well, it's also much more visible and much more readily visible with social media. So there's this sense that that because you haven't seen as much on social media, let's say 10 years ago, because it wasn't possible, it's much more visible and accessible now. And it, it can create the appearance that, oh, my gosh, we have an epidemic of violence happening. Yes. Uh, I'd say, you know, with the advent of cell phone cameras uh, in particular, you know, the the ability of somebody to post those kind of videos uh, has become commonplace. Right. And, uh, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Ed, what's your take on it from the fire service? As you look out into law enforcement, I mean, firefighters have always been seen as the, the favored hero, right? Uh, the firefighter, that image of the firefighter running out of the burning building, saving the baby, um, has always, I think, been been on people's minds. But as you look at law enforcement from your own perspective, what are you what are you seeing? Have we ever seen this happen before in history? Um, you know, there was. Uh, if you go back to San Diego, I believe it was in 2010, 2011, um, when the San Diego Fire Department was asked to participate in the Pride Parade uh, in San Diego. They, I guess the chief asked for volunteers uh, to do, to run the engine in the parade and they got no volunteers for it. And they landed up assigning an engine company that was near the parade route to be in the parade. Um, this was a huge news story. The four members of the engine company refused. I remember uh, that. To participate in the, uh, in the parade. And, there was there were years of fallout from that. Um, there was a lawsuit that ensued. Um, there was tension with the uh, fire chief at the time, uh, who was a lesbian, who was very pro community, mm-hmm. um, and wanted to see the fire department participate. Um, I think what's going on right now is is really a shame. Um, I believe that law enforcement and the fire service and EMS and all public uh, agencies that work within a city, they make up the fabric of the community along with the people that live in, in these communities. And everyone should be accepted at the, at the Pride Parade and that Pride event. Um, I, I just think it's it's a it's a real shame. Um, and I'm not exactly sure if how how the community is split. If it's split down the middle, or you know, I've seen some Pride parades. I would have to say the pride parades that are banning law enforcement are in the minority. 
Right. Um, I have not seen a lot of the large pride uh, events come out and say that they're banning law enforcement. And I think if they did, it would be a real shame. I've actually seen members of the LGBT community connect with members of law enforcement at pride events. Hmm. And when they find out that the officers are, are part of the LGBT community, whether they lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, when they find out that that law enforcement officer is that, you know, part of the community, I've seen them open up and I've actually heard people tell stories of, of, of crimes that have happened to them, to law enforcement. They feel more comfortable with someone in law enforcement who is LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I think this is, it's not a good thing um, to be banning anybody, anybody period. No one should be banned right. um, from a private. I mean, Law enforcement has made huge strides. There have been some some stumbles. There's going to be stumbles. Um, there, I mean, you know, getting away from law enforcement. I mean, just San Francisco Pride alone. Members of the Pride con uh, Committee have actually even challenged the the existence of Facebook or Google or large companies right. uh, participate. So right. um, again, I, I think banning anybody anybody or any group from Pride is, is wrong. So I think there is a big perspective. Well, let me strike that. So let me ask you both this question. I, I think there is a perception out there that, that one of the problems in law enforcement is racism, an ideology, a belief system that is prevalent throughout the profession. What are your senses from both your perspectives about that idea? Does racism exist? Julie, you want to go first? I, sure. Um, I, I, I think it exists, yes. Uh, I don't think it's systemic. I don't think it's even pervasive uh, in, in most places. I think there are isolated places where you're going to find it. Um, but I think, by and large, that's not the case. Okay. Ed, what do you think from, from witnessing I, everything I, that's I going on? Yeah, I agree with Julie. Um, I I have family that's in law enforcement. I have friends that are law enforcement officers. Um, systemic racism? No. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's going to be racism everywhere. Um, I, I think sometimes it's not necessarily racism. It's just hate or fear of, you know, people that are different than you are mm -hmm. and not understanding them. Um, it was hate that killed Matthew Shepard. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't racism mm -hmm. that killed him. Right. Um, it, there's there's hate everywhere, and it, a lot of times it's just again it's being you know exposed to people that you don't understand, people that you you don't know, a lifestyle that you are unaware of, that you're possibly fearful of, um, and dare I say you're ignorant of. Um, you know, it's I, I don't like I don't think it's entirely racism. Is there racism? Yes. Um, I don't think it's systemic. I agree with Julie. So I guess that begs the question then. Uh, you know, some would argue that what's going on today very much parallels what happened in the 1960s. It wasn't Black Lives Matter. It was the Black Panther movement. And, and yes, they're very different. And yet a lot of the violence and the criticism of law enforcement and the belief that racism was pervasive are very much the same. It's, it's almost like we've gone back to the 1960s. What's the answer today under under the current circumstances that we have with the, the 
the vast access to social media and news, the current political environment. How does law enforcement fix this? Well, I think there needs to be an open dialogue. You can't keep shutting each other down and shouting over one another uh, when one side's expressing their views and you can't ignore each other. Um, I think that is happening to some degree right now. Um, I, I think that there is not an open discussion about race. I don't think there's an open discussion about uh, civil rights right now in general. And especially when you have uh, a very contentious situation with rioters, and I, I won't say protesters because I don't think it's so contentious with the protesters, but certainly when there's violence interjected into civil unrest, um, that adversarial situation leads to a shutdown of dialogue. And right now that kind of seems to be what's happening. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And Ed, you alluded to this already, where you gave the example about members of the community, LGBT community, meeting and talking with law enforcement officers at a pride parade and how that changes perspective. Uh, but what's your sense? How do we solve this? Um, I agree with Julie and I, you know, this is something that I've been sitting with for a long time and pondering. It's like, we really need to listen to one another. Um, I have seen, you know, just watching, you know, things in person, watching things on the media, um, San Francisco, there was like 8,000, 10,000 people that mobilized, uh, in front of mission high school at mission Dolores park. And it was, it was a beautiful thing to see that many people come together for a cause, something that they want to see further. They want, they want to see open dialogue. They marched from Dolores Park. A group of them went to Mission, Mission Police Station. There was no violence. They stood and they talked. They had speeches within themselves. There was dialogue with law enforcement. They were speaking. I saw them speaking with law enforcement officers. There was no violence. Everyone was being heard. And that, to me, it got the message out. Mm -hmm. The message was lost. The message is completely lost when it goes violent. Mm -hmm. When things start getting torn up, when stores are broken into, when buildings are lit on fire, when traffic is blocked, the conversation is over. But when you can have a large, peaceful gathering, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think dialogue is a beautiful thing. I think we need more of that. I don't work in law enforcement. I know that there are organizations within law enforcement or divisions in law enforcement, um, the public information officer, the liaisons, you know, get those people working with the community and talking. Again, banning police officers from LGBT centers, that's wrong. Banning them from Pride events is wrong. This is where the dialogue is going to occur. Right. And there, and I agree with you. Then there has to be a willingness on both sides to discuss and to listen uh, and then to actually hear uh, from, from both sides. That's how you form relationships. Absolutely. You have to listen, too. I mean, there's one thing to let people talk, but you really need to listen. I've, lit I've spoken to a lot of people during all of this from all walks of life, uh, young people, older people, black, white, Asian. I've listened to everybody and everybody has really, it's, it's actually been enlightening to me. I'm in my mid fifties, listening to young people talk and share their ideas. 
I've really actually been encouraged and enlightened by some of the things that I've heard. Mm-hmm. And the want, the want for dialogue is there. Right. We've got a few minutes left, um, and I want to make sure that we talk about your respective organizations uh, and give people a place to go to learn more about what you're doing. Julie, let's start with you. Uh, you founded and run the Transgender Community of Police and Sheriffs. It's an international organization. Tell us about the mission and where people can go to learn more. Sure. We're a peer support, advocacy, and education group comprised of active duty, retired, and former transgender law enforcement officers and law enforcement support personnel. Um, We have members in 26 countries uh, around the world. Um, There's about 5,700 known transgender officers that we're aware of. Um, And there's probably about 3,500 roughly here in the U.S. Uh, We have a a discussion uh, page, uh, which is private on Facebook, but uh, we have a public uh, page uh, where people can contact us if they are interested in becoming part of the uh, TCOPS group. And we have a web page, and our web page is at www.tcops-international.org. Um, we do, we do a lot of outreach with, uh, officers. We do a lot of peer support stuff. And right now we're kind of finding that we're doing a lot of crisis counseling and referrals to, uh, mental health, uh, providers and things like that for our membership who are dealing with the pandemic and the anti-police rhetoric and then dealing with their own gender and sexual orientation issues. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just huge. We didn't even get time to talk about that, and that is a big issue that's going on too. Ed, talk about your organization, International EMS Firefighters Pride Alliance. Yeah, um, actually, where I've been doing this for just about, uh, I started the National EMS and Firefighters Pride Alliance just about 10 years ago. Two years ago, we went international with it. So now we're the international EMS and firefighters Pride Alliance. Um, we are mostly concentrated on, on aware, bringing awareness to LGBT folks in the EMS and fire service professions. Uh, we do educational outreach, peer support. Um, we organize some social events. Uh, one of our biggest events uh, we try to hold is in uh, Convergence, which is in October. Um, this year it's canceled. Um, we're not sure if we're going to be doing anything virtual or not. Um, we try to do that in October because we like to uh, attend the Matthew Shepard Foundation Gala, mm-hmm. which is a great organization doing awesome. great things. And we enjoy uh, going to their event. Um, if anybody would like more information about the International EMS and Firefighters Pride Alliance, you can go to www.iefpa.org. Perfect. And if you missed either of those websites for TCOPS or the Firefighters Pride Alliance, uh, we will put them on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can check them out. This is all to say, too, that if you are a member of the LGBTQ community and you want to make a change, one of the best ways to do that is to get involved in a public safety profession. Departments are eager to hire LGBTQ members. And so explore this. Talk with people who have done the job 
and then put your application in there. That's another great way to make change in this system. Uh, Julie Callahan, Ed Senatori, thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing both your experience, your personal stories, and about your respective organizations. We'll definitely want to have you back in the future to, to continue this conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Greg. As a regular listener on this show, you know I've spent most of my working life in law enforcement. It's been a gift and a very special part of my life. But law enforcement is desperate for capable, dedicated, out lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender officers. It's quickly becoming a highly desirable attribute that chiefs and sheriffs are recognizing as an aspect of identity that can enhance the rank and file. There are so many jobs out there right now. And if you've ever had an inkling but thought you wouldn't be hired because you're gay or transgender, now's the time to think again. Next month, we'll continue this discussion, but from a slightly different angle. My guest will be Dale Peters. He's an African-American police officer from Southern California who founded his own online TV show called Black and Blue. Dale's a straight guy who has a personal mission of making visible all the many differences that exist within the rank and file of law enforcement. We'll talk about his perspective of what's going on today as an African-American member of the rank and file. We'll also share with you some of the dozen pieces of legislation pending in California, all intended to make law enforcement more accountable and transparent. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra. Gary Carnavelli will be in and hosting that show. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. In the meantime, thanks for spending your Sunday night with us, and stay safe and healthy. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move. On air, online, or on the go, we are Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor, and K215-CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. It's just before 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. <laughs>